1: Welcome back. There is a huge backlog of criminal cases because of the pandemic, and now the government is pledging $72 million over the next two years to clear it. And that involves hiring more Crown attorneys and other staff. But will it be enough? Attorney General Doug Downey says... Quote, the government is taking these measures to prevent people accused of murder, sexual assault, and other serious crimes from growing, going free without a trial due to the exceptional pressure on the justice system caused by the COVID 19 pandemic. Now, uh, that's actually a scary thought. What do you think? The numbers four one six three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. So, how much of that is happening now? Uh, people accused of serious crimes going free. Let us go to criminal defense lawyer Ari Goldkind. Hey, Ari.
2: Libby, always great to be on with you.
1: Okay, well, always great to talk to you. So uh, how bad is this?
2: Uh, I don't think it's bad at this point. I think what the the, uh, the uh, Attorney General is trying to do is to prevent this from being a problem. What that means, just so people can have background as to what we're talking about, Libby, is that the Supreme Court decided a number of years ago, in a decision that's never sat right with me, that the ceiling for criminal cases and many provincial offenses act cases i mean even speeding and you know other highway traffic defense uh you know we not everything here is criminal you know insurance trespass liquor violations that if it's a lower court case it takes 18 months as a maximum and if it's a superior court case i.e a murder a sex assault with a jury those sorts of things that the ceiling is 30 months Lawyers like me will bring applications that say, you know, because of COVID, and I'll get to that in a second, you know, my client's been waiting 32 months for a trial because juries didn't sit, as you know, Libby, from March of 2020 to roughly June or July of this year.
1: Well, people, sorry, but I know people who are still getting excused from jury duty because they say, "I'm, I'm not going during COVID. A hundred percent.
2: And you have to be double vaccinated, which many would say, you know, keeps out a segment of the population that may be more open minded to taking an anti authoritarian stance. I'm going to get into that because we don't have time. But the point of the story is that the one thing that you can say for the Supreme Court decision, which what we're talking about literally is about, it's called the Jordan ceiling, is that extraordinary circumstances stop the clock. that's an important term. But as you know, Libby, plain English, the longer that something goes on, for example, COVID, the longer it goes on, the less extraordinary it becomes. So Doug Downey, and I don't speak for him, but obviously there's a concern that with the courts reopening and many jury trials still proceeding more slowly and the backlog and all of these things that people know in common sense that lawyers like me and the Ontario Bar and the Canadian Bar will bring all sorts of applications to get our clients' charges, it's called stayed, because of delay. And this is an attempt at the top of the food chain, because he's the top of the food chain, to prevent this from happening by clearing the decks, so to speak, the ramifications, and the fallout of that, I'm sure you want to chat about.
1: Well, yeah, the fallout from that, but also... I thought we were backlogged even before COVID and that, uh, uh, as you said, the beginning of COVID made things uh, backlogged even more. So So
2: it's such a smart point you make because for years, Libby, it's always a backlog in the courts. There are always these conversations. It's called the culture of complacency in my business. COVID has only exacerbated it. COVID has not started. And that's only because courts were closed from about March to July um, uh, of this year. So March 2020 to July in terms of jury trials. But Libby, you know, as much as it's very easy to beat up on my system, and I can, there's never proper funding for defense lawyers. All the money go to judges, crowns, victim services, never an extra dollar to defense lawyers, always the opposite side. Now, Libby, you know I'm smart enough to know that will win me no supporters by saying it. But uh, the criminal justice system doesn't work unless defense are properly funded. But I digress. Mm -hmm. The criminal justice system has made some very significant inroads, Libby. It's not all bad news and gloom and doom. You know, there's been a massive shift to Zoom. And I mean Zoom. I know people think, oh, I'm a criminal lawyer. Am I talking about what they use for meeting, uh, you know, at work? Yes. Yes. We have been doing trials since last year by Zoom. With judges alone, doesn't matter how many accused, it's allowed people in custody to get their trial dates on. Not juries, Libby, but most cases are not with a jury. Zoom has been incredible. Uh, The the switch to technology has been incredible, where we're getting all of things. And by the way, Libby, you're not going to believe me on this. If I wanted to read my client's case, I had to drive down to a courthouse, pay to park, sit in traffic, walk into the building, go to the Crown's office and pick up 350 pages of paper, take it back to the office. Now, it's sent to me in one email. So these are things that I know are not juicy and exciting to talk about, but are very positive. Now, what Douglas Downey is doing, back to the topic at hand, is he's going to screen more files out of the criminal justice system to make sure that there is more room for the most serious of crimes. However, Libby, As your callers may know, every crime that involves a potential victim is viewed as serious. It doesn't have to be rape, sex, assault, or murder, and there is a concern justifiably that many cases will be pushed out or dealt away, that in a previous time that looked at most violent crimes or significant crimes as serious, you know, would be dealt with differently, and that's just as a function of of how many courtrooms in the province are there, how many judges, how much human capacity. But, you know, I, I don't think it's all
3: gloom and doom.
1: Let's take a call from Ron in Guelph. Hi, Ron.
3: Hi, Libby. Um, great conversation. I was <laughs> I was thinking about that earlier, is the, the fact that the police keep arresting the same guys uh, over and over again. I mean, I don't understand why. If you're caught... With a gun doing a crime, how can you possibly get out on bail? Uh,
1: Yeah, there was... Sorry, Ari, before before you answer, I just want to add uh, my very similar question. Uh, I didn't quite understand. There's there's some provision in what Doug Downey introduced uh, regarding bail, uh, expanding the abilities of crowns to assess bail positions. So maybe you could explain that to us, what sure, that means sure. in English.
2: In, in simple English, Libby, and I yep. only take up 10 seconds, it's ostensibly a move to release more people on bail, not fewer, That's the purpose of a bail vetter. Every experienced Crown attorney in this land knows who they should seek the detention of, who they should seek to keep in jail pending trial. But when you invest this much time in an announcement and increased bail vetting, that's really code for releasing more people, which the criminal defense bar will tell you is a very, very good thing. Everybody's presumed innocent. And other people who look at it from a different vantage point, different stakeholder will say it's a very concerning and troubling thing, as your caller alluded to.
1: Ron, does that answer the question?
3: Well, it, it, it's troubling, if I still there, is the fact that it's not a matter of, if the police catch somebody with a gun, I mean, is this the law that just because they have a gun? Um, that I mean, I don't understand why the, the law is such that, uh, if you're caught with a gun, that you are, you know, presumed innocent, so you're guilty. I'm, I'm at a loss to understand that.
2: Let me answer Ron because Libby. Ron makes a point, and I want to give due respect to Ron because he makes a point that the mayor of Toronto has made many times, Libby, and he gets called out for it all the time. And you know, he takes a lot of heat for it. The chiefs of police say the same thing as Ron, so Ron is certainly saying something very, very understandable. The way the system is supposed to work is that in our bail system, Libby, and I'm going to be tight on time here.
1: Yep, you are.
2: That's why I'm doing it quickly. The tertiary ground of bail looks at it for bail purposes as very exacerbating, much more problematic if somebody has a gun used in the commission of an offense for bail. Now, if somebody is caught, Libby, with a gun in their waistband, in their underpants, with bullets, and they have a history, they're quite likely to be detained. They really are. There are cases involving firearms, though, Libby, where there's a question as to whose gun it is. Were four people in a car and there's a gun under the floor mat? Is there a good plan of supervision where mom and dad will come and watch somebody 24-7? That person may be on you know, the precipice or the threshold and get bail. That's an argument that we don't have time to get into today, uh, Libby, but your caller, Ron, raises a point that absolutely makes the mayor of Toronto uh, and the police chiefs apoplectic, and you certainly have Ottawa turning a complete blind eye to gun violence by trying to go after some shotgun owner in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, which has nothing to do with city crime.
1: Okay, that uh, explains that. So, uh I think uh, people will find that a bit concerning. You're saying that this is going to result in more people released on bail. Which
2: many people would say is a good thing, given that they're presumed innocent. They haven't had their trial. They shouldn't wait in jail for a year, a year and a half. It's a much more fulsome discussion that I don't think I can pack into the next 24 seconds.
1: Okay, uh, but so what is the bottom line on, on all of this? I think the bottom line is we have to make sure that the
2: system works efficiently. And I don't know that it's efficient to say to certain people, particularly, let's say, victims of domestic violence, which our criminal code treats very seriously, Libby, that if you punch your wife, push your wife, threaten your wife, that that may not be looked at, and I'm just making up one example, I can come up with 10, that that may not be looked at as seriously as something that goes further. But to a woman who's been violated like this, or other people who have been burglarized, robbed, young people who have had iPads or iPods or iPhones stolen. You know, these are crimes that are serious. I think Crowns know what to do, but there's a lot of pressure on them, Libby. I've been talking about this since last year. There's a lot of pressure to deal many of these cases away. If it's a homeless person, Libby, that steals a sandwich from Loblaws or Sobeys, the criminal court should not be ridden with them. I take impaired driving much more seriously than some. Those, I worry, will not be taken as seriously, and you're going to increase the lack of enforcement and punishment for drunk driving. But again, I'm trying to be quick, and I think there's a balancing, and Doug Downey does not want to open up the Toronto Star and see that a first-degree murder prosecution or a serious rape case has been dismissed on a delay application when he's clearly doing everything he can to make room, but it's a, it's a bigger problem than I can pack into these, you know, seconds.
1: Okay. Thank you for that. Ari Goldkind, appreciate your time. Thank you, Libby. Okay. And that is all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. This week the Ford government will announce details on the rollout of booster shots. It follows new guidelines from NASI, some of which, as we were just discussing, I find a bit confusing. What about you? 416 Toll free one 866 740 And now let's go to Dr. Susie Hota, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at the University Health Network. Dr. Hota, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Okay, well, uh, the first area of confusion, as we were discussing, so the the guideline is people over 80 should get a booster shot, but if you're 79, 70 to 79, you may get a booster shot. So uh, what's the deal with that?
4: I think the should is meant to reflect the uh, greater certainty that you, you would require that third dose if you're over the age of 80, and that's looking at what the data has shown so far, uh, and this is Canadian data as well as international data, where really that's where the evidence of um, some waning immunity and less protection against severe outcomes uh, and also just infection Altogether um, has been panning out. So after the age of eighty, we are starting to see, uh, over time, there is waning of of the immunity from vaccines, such that people are getting admitted to hospital with breakthrough infections more frequently than um, you know if they were just recently immunized. as well as there are some deaths as well in that age group. Now, that effect is being seen. It's a gradual effect that is occurring over age brackets. And it is being seen in the 70 to 79-year age group that there is some waning immunity, but it's just not as um, marked. It's not as noticeable as what you see after 80. And so that's why there's the should versus the May in the recommendation.
1: Well, pe- people who are close to 80 are saying, hey, well, is something magical going to happen on my birthday? Right. <laughs> Nothing magical. Like
4: I said, these are, these are continuous um, kind of data, and uh, it's hard to really just know on an individual level um, you know, where, where your risk will sit. It's looking at all the data that we have together amongst uh, people in different age brackets, that are divided, you know, somewhat arbitrarily by 10-year groups groupings and, um, and then over time. So I think the, the message here is, as you get older, there is a concept of, we call it immune senescence. Your immune system may not work as well, number one, but also in response to vaccines. But secondly, and importantly, you might um, have less uh, durability and protection from vaccines when you're older. So you know, where that lies and from one person to another that your risk starts to go up is not really clear, but that's where the policy has to draw some kind of a line. And this is where they're saying, you know, we strongly believe that at the 80 plus after six months have elapsed from your second dose, you should get your booster dose. But at the 70 to 70 age mark, it looks like that as well. It's just
1: less certain. And and everybody who had AstraZeneca, now my question is that most of the international evidence is based on people who had mRNA 28 days apart, yet uh, here the recommendation is if you had two shots of AstraZeneca, which in Canada came three months apart, um, you better go get that booster. So can you unpack some of that for us, please? Yes, the data in real life now that we've had more time
4: to look at what the durability of responses are and just how high um, immune responses were in terms of antibody levels, but also the, the effectiveness, so how well you're protected in real life against infection. We're getting more of that now and, and stronger evidence of it. And two doses of the viral vector um, vaccines, which includes the uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine, in fact, it's one dose for Johnson & Johnson, it seems to provide slightly less effectiveness uh, in protection against symptomatic infection compared to if you had a full series of an mRNA vaccine, slightly less. But the important thing is you're also seeing from that that kind of protection a little more of a waning effect. And so this is where the recommendation is um, to, to consider getting that third uh, vaccine dose. But using an mRNA vaccine, which we've seen actually does boost up those antibody levels and improve your chances of being protected quite well. And very comparable to if you had, you know, two doses of an mRNA vaccine. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it makes sense to have that as a consideration. And, again, it's something that it's not a should at this point. It's a, it's a may. But to me, it is showing that the evidence is pointing in that direction. That's likely what will need to happen, whether now or if it can happen a little bit down the road is kind of the question.
1: Okay, here's here's something that I really didn't quite understand. It says there is a concern that waning there's waning immunity over time to the antibodies in your nasal passage, but the ones in your bloodstream largely remain. I I had no idea they were in two places. So could you explain that a bit, please? Our immune responses are very complex. There's local immune
4: responses at the site where infections tend to take place and kind of begin. Um, And in these respiratory viruses, when we're talking about them, it's usually our, our noses and the nasal pharynx, which is just kind of towards the throat, in the the oral kind of area as well Um, and then also lower down in the respiratory tract there can be um, sites of infection with these viruses and you do get local stimulation of different cells and different parts of your immune system that are important for controlling infection Um, but also it triggers this large cascade of events throughout the body and we call that sort of your systemic immune response and that's where you can see antibodies that get mobilized, developed and mobilized and circulate in the blood and those antibodies are, are kind of very helpful fighters against infection if you get exposed down the, the, to, down the road um, and protects you from future infection. So they're both important markers to follow and to understand. Um, and I think what it's trying, the statement's trying to explain is that just because you're measuring antibody changes or other immune marker changes in one part of the body does not necessarily reflect the entire picture of what's happening. And, you know, there, there are some parts of our immune response that are not so accessible and measurable. We can't necessarily, you know, test for them as easily. And you may still have some protection in those parts of your body that are ready to go if you're exposed uh, that may not come up from the tests of antibody levels. It's one of the big reasons why we don't use measurement of antibody levels in the blood in this case but, um, as a good reason to guide our decision-making on whether somebody is still fully protected with their um, their vaccine after they've had a series or after an infection. It's quite a complicated picture.
1: So if, if there are antibodies in your nasal passage, uh, you you they don't leave uh, if you, I don't know, flush out your nose or blow your nose or something. They just s- sit there for as long as they do?
4: Right. They're, they're still there. They're still available. It's not like you'll be eliminating them every time you, you blow your nose. Uh, you know, you're eliminating mucus and other things that are are, are able to, uh, you know, more readily able to come out of your body. But, yeah. yeah, these responses, and it's not like they get used up either. They're, you know, they're, they're always being, they're, they're there for a longer time. They, they don't get wasted um, over time. So I, I, that's not something that you should worry about.
1: Okay, so the the way this has come out, uh, I mean, they're going to tell us about the rollout, uh, but um, would your advice be, you know, get it as soon as you can, as soon as you're eligible? Yes, as soon as you're eligible. So uh, even for the
4: 80-plus, they're recommending, and this is NACI's recommendation, is at least six months after your second dose is when you would get the third dose, your booster dose. Um, so some people, actually I think it's the vast majority of Canadians, completed their um, second dose sometime in June or July, so may not even be at a point where we've reached that, you know, sort of uh, critical point that your immune system might not be protecting you as much if you're over 80. So uh, it might be a little bit more of a wait to get that that third dose. And then the other thing I will, the other point I'll make is this is NASI recommendations. And What happens after this is the provinces then weigh in on how they want to roll it out and what they want to recommend. And generally, it follows NACI. But sometimes there's subtle differences in in the decisions that are made, you know, just from a feasibility implementation point of view or after reviewing the recommendations, they feel it just makes more sense to go in a slightly different route. So even though we see these NACI recommendations, it's important that we wait to see what, you know, the Ministry of Health in Ontario, for example, is going to say for booster dose rollout.
1: And again, with that, at least six months. Uh, as far as I know, most of the evidence comes from Israel, and and they were five months uh, for people over sixty. Yeah, some jurisdictions have used slightly different timelines. Five months is what
4: you know most commonly comes out from the Israel experience. The six months really came from a couple of places. Number one, the studies that were kind of designed to evaluate. The booster doses and how well they would work and how safe they are, use six months. That was the timeline that was chosen to evaluate. So that's where, when this gets fully reviewed and authorized by Health Canada as a booster um, kind of dose, and I should say that caveat, although NASA's put these recommendations out. Um, Pfizer and Moderna have, have submitted data and um, a request to Health Canada for approval for this use of the vaccine as a booster. And that's still, we're still waiting for that to come out. But the data they've submitted there used a six-month interval. So that's really the, the main kind of gist of it, why uh, six months is being recommended, is that's what we have the most sort of empiric evidence to look towards.
1: Anything else you'd like to leave us with on this? You
4: know, I think that uh, it's interesting, and I think a lot of people are just waiting anxiously at the edge of their seats about all these new uh, indications coming forward with the boosters. Um, It's going to be a rapidly changing uh, landscape, and I I hope that people are able to keep up with the information uh, and get out there as soon as you are eligible. There's so much going on in terms of prioritization, you know, getting uh, the review of the 5 to 11 age groups and, and making sure that that happens as well. I, I just think that um, it's important to keep on top of who's being recommended because those are the areas where we're most vulnerable and we just really want to you know, increase the protection in those groups.
1: Well, uh, uh, people, keep listening here and we will make sure you're up to date. And Dr. Susie Hota, thanks so much uh, for clarifying all those questions. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks. Uh, bye-bye. Okay, we are taking another break, and when we come back onto something completely different, and that is the backlog of criminal cases. How bad is it, and is the government's plan going to start to clear it? And are there people accused of very serious crimes who are walking the streets and going free because of what's been going on? We'll get to that on the other side of the break
0: you're listening to an exclusive podcast of fight back on zoomer radio heard weekdays from noon to one now fight back with libby's nimer on zoomer radio
1: Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad. And it's our first meeting since the Ford government unveiled new long-term care legislation last week. And it came after 3,800 pandemic-related deaths. The government's bill doubles the maximum fines levied on homes that break the law. It increases the power of long-term care home inspectors by allowing them to issue compliance orders on the spot. And it allows the ministry to put in place a long-term care home supervisor to run at home if they are offside. Now those are the highlights of the new legislation introduced by long-term care minister Rod Phillips. And It's getting mixed reviews. Now, while operators in the for-profit part of the sector are applauding it, last week here on Fightback, representatives of the not-for-profit sector... uh weren't that happy. They said that increased inspections could be punitive amid a staffing shortage, even on homes that have been doing a good job. And other critics questioned the government's willingness to punish bad actors. Uh, And, you know, none of the new measures are retroactive to what happened during COVID-19. So what do you think? The numbers to call 416 360 0740, toll free 1 866 740 4740. We're going to see what the squad thinks about this and also guidelines for booster shots, which Zoomers will be eligible for. Now I'd like to welcome David Kravitz. Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer of CARP. Hi, everyone.
5: Hello, Libby. Libby. Hi, everyone. Hello, there, Libby.
1: Uh, Let us begin with David on the long-term care file. What do you think?
5: Well, I think the most important thing in this uh, rather long-windedly titled act The Providing More Care, Protecting Seniors, and Building More Beds Act, uh, the most important seed change I'm seeing is not even in the specific items, but in the fact that they've moved under uh, Rod Phillips to really starting to deal with concrete, measurable, actionable, viewable uh, actions and outcomes, rather than um, abstract statements of good intent, so they're talking about numbers of beds, they're talking about number of hours of care, white year, various things are gonna be achieved. Um, and I think that there's an awareness that they need to produce uh, concrete outcomes now. And the time for uh, statements of uh, you know, noble intentions is over. And to me, that's the biggest change of all that I've seen.
1: Uh, Bill, what do you think?
3: I agree with David. There were a number of specifics in the uh, in the uh, communications that Carp had uh, with the ministry, saying these are the kinds of things that need to be done, and they've touched on on all of them. And as David said, uh, we've been getting promises after promises for a year now, and finally we have not only some. Uh, specific actions, but also something that can be measured in terms of, of how, many, how many are done, how it's, ac- how it's accomplished, and what the uh, results are. So uh, overall, uh, we're very happy with the announcement and glad to see they're finally taking some real steps.
1: Peter, one of the things that had me shaking my head, one of the biggest criticisms of the government was that they basically uh, gutted the inspection system after they came in 2018-2019. And this, they're doubling the number of inspectors and bringing back regular inspections. And, um, you know, people were complaining about it. So... After complaining about the other, I mean, I had to say that had me scratching my head a bit.
6: Yeah, it's a bit ironic, isn't it? But um, I I think what they realized was that these money-saving moves really uh, hurt them when when the pandemic struck. And there there was no one to, you know, there there was no one to check on these homes to see whether they were doing a good job in infection control or, you know, arming their staff. They did phone uh, inspections.
1: Phone inspections. I'm sorry. They did phone inspections. Phone inspections
6: exactly. Yeah. So um and and that's all they could do because they there were no inspectors, right? So um, I, I I think this is them admitting that they they messed up that file and they're they're trying to correct it and and you know look if this thing if they're serious about this and and the fines have teeth and the inspectors are armed with um, you know they, they have the power to go in and and actually look at the places without uh, telling them ahead of time I I think this legislation is really good and and really promising. But you know, um, are they going to are they going to uh, enforce these fines? Are they going to allow inspectors free range? That that remains to be seen. They haven't in the past, so um, that that's a huge. Um, you know, uh, we'll, we'll have to wait to see that.
1: Well, yeah. So, David, what do you think? I mean, they said, okay, now these inspectors will have the authority to uh, put a compliance order in. I guess that's not exactly a charge, but they can get something done on the spot rather than having to take it back to their directors. And then sort of the chorus of critics says, well, they, they didn't charge people before, so why should we believe they'll do it now?
5: Well, I think that second question is an open question. We can always say that. You're looking at the future, and yes, it'll happen. No, it won't happen. But what I'm most encouraged about in their own fact sheet on these inspections, they say the program focuses on residents' rights, infection prevention and control, plans of care, abuse and neglect, nutrition and hydration, medication management, and dining. So they're looking at... We're trying to look at a kind of holistic approach to better health in these homes. And remember, we did hear a lot of complaints during the height of the pandemic. Not only were they failing to keep infection out, but the residents who were not infected with uh, COVID, uh, the quality of their care was dropping materially and um, nobody seemed to be able to put the two sides of the equation together. It sounds to me like they're saying there's going to be a regime that makes sure that the health and the rights of the residents with all the components uh, is now going to be the focus of these inspectors. And then if there's an individual complaint, we'll respond to those as well. So it looks like they're trying to tie together a, a lot of components that do relate to overall health and welfare in these homes. And again, uh, the jury's out. If they can make that stick, it will be a very uh, significant change for the better.
1: Uh, Peter, what do you think is behind, I mean, nothing is retroactive, and I can see why people are upset about that. And they they, they had uh, previously, they changed the law to make it a lot harder to sue.
6: Yeah, they're, you know, I I, I think they're, this is a looking forward uh, piece of legislation. They're not going to go backwards and, uh, and and look into the past because it was such a disaster and, and so many homes failed to live up to what this new legislation is looking for. So um, And the government failed to, to do their job. So I, I think what they're doing is they're, they're just, okay, this is how we're going to do it going forward. We messed up in the past, but, um, you know, you can't you can't fix the past you have to just go forward and 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 that's i you know i i don't see anything about uh you know punishing bad actors from the previous uh, waves so
1: yeah i mean uh, i can see why people are upset about that but it, it it's also what what i seem to be seeing on the one hand there are those saying Rod Phillips is a breath of fresh air. Clearly, he's taking this in hand. And in the same breath, almost, people are saying, uh, we, we we don't trust them to actually get this done. They're too much in bed with corporate interests, Bill.
3: Well, there's there is one other a uh, bright spot that I think might speak to that. And you'll recall one of the complaints that CARP had uh, through our members, from our members, was that the communication with residents and their families was totally insufficient uh, throughout COVID. Now this uh, legislation is talking about mandatory quarterly uh, reporting about uh, the quality indicators in the homes and standardized yearly surveys of residents, and families, uh, talking about improving the transparency uh, so that the families and the residents have more input. Now, yearly surveys uh, uh, sounds too far apart to me. I think they need to be more than that. But, but uh, if, there going to be, if there are going to be quarterly reports that are public that families and residents could, could look at, this will go a long way to bringing these concerns to the fore uh, before they get out of hand.
1: The other thing that came up, David, was this whole business of for-profit versus not-for-profit. So one of the things that I mean, there's the whole debate. The opposition is saying they would, they would, uh, uh, I guess, nationalize is the long wrong word, but but buy out all the for-profit homes, and the government says they, they that would take up all the money and they wouldn't be able to do anything else, uh, but. One focus of concern, because it is true that not-for-profit homes had better outcomes in general, uh, is going forward. So, so some of the stakeholders are worried that former bad actors, and I think there's at least one case, are getting licenses to develop new homes. And uh, the minister was up and he said, hey, the majority of the new licenses, as a matter of fact, went to municipal and not for profit
5: Right well I think the I think that also is tied in with uh, why they didn't do retroactive fines. I think that there's a recognition that they're going to need the for-profit sector at least in the medium term short to medium term. Who's going to build these new beds? There isn't one single government, you know, construction company that's owned by the problem. Who's going to build these things? And how are we going to transition Uh, from the management of the homes as they are today to the management of the homes as we want them tomorrow. And if you ideologically just clamp, say, this sector's gone, you can't move the people out onto the streets or the for-profit people are going to have to be in the mix for a while. And I think they're trying to manage their way toward some sort of a hybrid uh, system. But if the uh, inspection regime, that'll be the great equalizer, because if they do... Uh, the inspections the way they're claiming they will, then the nature of the ownership won't matter. It'll be this home at this address failed the test and must be sanctioned, and this home at this address passed the test, and this is okay.
1: But what about uh, the, you know, the, the claim that some of the worst performers are actually getting new licenses? Peter?
6: Well, I, I can't speak to that because I, I, I don't know whether, you know, I, I just don't know have enough background on that. But um, certainly, I, I mean, I agree with David. Like, you can't just eliminate um, this a huge percentage of beds and, and declare them, you know, uh, pro- provincially owned with a stroke of a pen. I mean, they, these homes have, um, for years, they've they provided, you know, uh Good, long, a lot of them provide good long-term care, and you know, without the government having to invest in the, in the building, you know, in the so so, you know, I, I understand the, the criticism, but you know, this is a this is a conservative government, and they're not going to nationalize um, long-term care homes.
1: Yeah, well, you know what? I th- i think the uh, minister sort of said it best, quoting his mother. He said the proof is in the pudding. So uh, it looks like everything it looks pretty good on paper, but we'll have to see what happens in yeah. practice.
6: And the other thing, Libby, too, is that if, if they do enforce these, these fines and these inspections you know it it may drive the the for profit operators out of out of the business you know like if if it's too onerous for them if there's too many rules to follow if there's if there's fines lurking if there are inspections they can't meet then um it may it may just drive them out of the business you know and 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 so it, it might have that effect anyway
1: I'm- I mean, I'm not. I'm not sure. Uh, you know what the processes are to get to maximum fines, because I don't think the the inspectors can actually fine you. But anyway, the fines in the legislation are. Uh Up to a million dollars for a home, so it's five hundred thousand first offense a million for up to four hundred thousand for individuals and board members at for profits so it's two hundred thousand first offense four hundred thousand uh second offense so uh, those are pretty hefty uh I would imagine that uh, insurance <laughs> the insurance for directors and for homes will go up
6: yeah. I I don't know and sit on the board of a for-profit home.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting that during the pandemic, and this is something that both the for-profit and not-for-profit were aligned about, when uh, that law came in basically indemnifying them, they both said, without that, we will not have insurance. Uh, Bill, do you have a thought on that?
3: Yeah, well, yeah, and that was absolutely uh, true. But, you know, the whole for-profit not-for-profit argument uh, is 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 really misleading um what we really had was inappropriate standards not being uh, enforced for either and there are all you know all kinds of extor- historic issues that undermined elder care the overcrowding lack of staff uh, poor management uh, all of those things uh, were uh, contributing to it. And and it wasn't clearly just a, a question of for-profit and uh, not-for-profit. In fact, in, in, in there are many cases where not-for-profit had worse records than uh, for-profit. Um, you know, governments and politicians sometimes try to distract the public from their failure by trying to put the blame on the long-term care uh, operators. And, and surely we can get through this now and treat them all with the same uh, regulations and make sure that all are living up uh, to the standards
1: uh, david do you have a thought on that
5: well i think that Bill's right and i think they're really trying to manage on this topic a very complex issue you can't have retroactive fines because it's a principle of the common law that you can't have ex post facto legislation and um, impose a different penalty now than what applied at the time the the offense occurred So he's gonna get all kinds of civil litigation if he tries to do that. What does he need to be tied up with that for? That's number one. Number two, the revenue model is fixed. The amount that they can charge is fixed. So the only margin for profit is on cost. So you would have to show that the reason it was such a mess is that they were cutting corners. I have no doubt that in some homes they were, in other homes they weren't. And some for-profits got caught up in staff shortages um, that weren't of their making, in um, lack of knowledge about infection control at the very beginning that wasn't really a function of greedy people trying to improve their bottom line by deliberately letting a virus into the home. Uh, so you have to prove all that, to, to win those kinds of uh, uh, litigation battles, is just a great big money pit compared to moving forward. Now, you're right that the proof is in the pudding, and people may be quite right to be skeptical, and CARP is for sure going to have a very uh, tough, unsentimental eye on this and on on looking at the performance. But on the other hand, I don't think you can condemn it before you see how it plays out. And on paper, they have shown a different approach, a more specific, uh, outcomes-oriented approach, and I think to that extent, anyway, to that extent, uh, it can be applauded.
1: Okay, moving right along. Booster shots are coming. I'm sure that a lot of uh, Zoomers are relieved to hear that. So uh, there's one thing that in the Nasi guidelines, the uh, Advisory Council on Immunizations, that I find confusing because it says... People 80 and over, and then as a separate thing, it says people 70 to 79. So uh, I'm sort of wondering what that all means. But uh, what's your reaction to that, Peter?
6: To the my reaction to the booster shot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, if if we have the doses here, and, and I, I think we Ontario has stockpiled quite a few doses, and um, and they're not going to ship them to countries where. You know the vaccination rates are low. Um, then, uh, then uh, I, you know, it, I think it makes sense for the third dose, especially for people living in in long term care homes.
1: They're already getting it. Yeah. Uh- so. We have a, a a huge number in Canada. We have, I I think, that we have the most vaccines per person, yeah, and it's something like yeah. a, eleven point something shots per person. Per though person. some of yeah. some of them are are vaccines that haven't been approved yet. But it looks like this is going to happen, David.
5: I think it is going to happen, and I think that. Um, all we can say is generically it's a good idea i'm in favor of it i'm going to get one as soon as i can but i think that the precision around it do you need it do you not need it when do you need it what kind do you need uh, we've long passed the point of any scientific precision on this it's all over the map and you're as likely to hear uh, you know, different approaches in different jurisdictions. So, I've for me, I'm not trying to figure out all of it, except to say um, it's great. Let me get it when I can. And by the way, it's flu season as well. So, if my arm becomes a pincushion of preventive uh, <laughs> medications, <then> and <laughs> so be it. But I well, they said you figure can out get the fine print on this. You, me, really. they, they've
1: said that you can get both at as at once. I mean, the thing. Uh, That's interesting and and I talked to some experts about this and they don't have data but you know the the data, most of the data that we have is based on Israel where people got mRNA vaccines 28 days apart and here they've made the age exception for people who have two shots of AstraZeneca three months apart. So I'm sure there's some kind of different thing there but nobody knows exactly what it means
3: well that you you've hit it on the head, Libby. there's really a, a, a lack of consistency once again and uh, and the and the weasel words that uh, you were talking about the uh, the eighty old and older and the seventy seventy nine well, if you read the actual a statement, you see that those over eighty they said should be offered the uh, booster dose, and for those seventy to seventy nine may be offered. Uh, the dose so this is really confusing to people if you know, our members our CART members are saying to us if if it's a good thing for us to get uh, this booster five or six months after we had our last uh, last shot why shouldn't everybody uh, be getting it and why are they they leaving it up to local authorities by saying may uh, and uh, for the for the 70 to 79 year olds And it's going to vary across the province. Uh, Different jurisdictions, as David said, are going to do it uh, uh, differently. And, uh, you know, most of us would like to see uh, if there's going to be a national recommendation from a group like the National Advisory Committee, that it should be a specific recommendation that every jurisdiction has to to follow and to have this kind of these kinds of shoulds and mays. It uh, doesn't wash.
1: No, nothing, uh, you know, uh, health has pre- been sort of blanket. Very few things have been mm-hmm. blanket. Uh, and, um, but at uh, least one th- they could make a
3: firm recommendation. They they said, they said, why not say should for everybody? Why why use the word May for part of the, the uh, population and not for
4: everyone.
1: Well, beats me, as, as uh, some of you will recall. I'm not a huge fan of NASI. Uh, so, and they said at least six months. And I know that in Israel, uh, it was five months for people over 60. Uh, and that we have all these stockpiled doses and you've got to figure that some of them are going off in the meantime. So, uh, you know, I think that we should roll this out. And the other, the other thing about it, Peter or, or David is that, uh, in BC they're saying anybody over 18.
5: Exactly. And, <laughs> and getting back to NASI, I mean, the 79 and 80. It, the problem here it pretends to a degree of scientific pre- precision that is illusory. Does something magic happen at midnight uh, when I turn 80? I'm not yet 80, of course, but like when I <laughs> when I leave 79 and turn 80, is something magic happened to my body that means I must have that booster more urgently than I did five minutes ago? I mean, they, it, it's just. It's almost overly precise, and it just adds to the confusion because it implies that there's some scientific basis for this. And it's all they're just guessing, they're shooting in the dark. It's generically desirable. Get it as soon as you can. And uh, that's uh, the best they're going to achieve anyway. So why have all this confusing wording to make it seem like they know more than they really do? Because they don't. They
1: don't have a clue. Why do it? because it's nasty. <laughs> anyway, we are uh running out of time here, so I'll go around the virtual table starting with Peter.
6: Yeah, I I just like to um compliment Carp like this um the, this legislation in Ontario on nursing homes is a direct result of CARP's uh, heavy-duty campaign during the nursing home crisis when I, when people were dying. The radio ads, the media appearances, the you know the uh, emergency meetings—a lot of it. What, uh, what Phillips announced is, is a direct result of uh, CARP's advocacy, and I I'd, I'd just like to compliment both Bill and David on it. It was very effective and will remain effective, I, I imagine.
1: Bill.
3: Well, thank thank you, uh, Peter. And, and certainly, there is satisfaction uh, with uh, what's happened so far, and we're going to continue to make sure that the uh, government uh, follows through on these uh, provinces. And I and I do want to add a reminder: we're still talking a lot about COVID vaccines, but uh, the the flu vaccines are now uh, available uh, right across the uh, province. If you haven't made your appointment to get yours yet, please uh, do it now. We risk having uh, a bad flu season along with uh, the risk of COVID, and that could be disastrous for our demographic, so don't I, I, forget well, your flu shot.
1: I just want to put in a note on that, and the city-run clinics, which will have high-dose, uh, are apparently uh, starting soon, or this week, but uh, I did a show on flu shots, you know, maybe 10 days ago, or was it... Anyway, uh, within a matter of days, and when I did the show, uh, everybody said, yeah, we've got lots of high-dose, and then I called around to make sure, and guess what? All gone, and as of Friday, when I was started calling around again, the second shipments hadn't arrived. So, um, yeah. It, yeah, you might need you, you to cool your jets on your flu shot, people. Uh, David, last word to you. Um, one of the things
5: CARP has um, done and learned is that when you focus on specifics, measurable outcomes, and you demand performance from highly paid bureaucrats who are either delivering or not, Um, That can make a difference, and I appreciate what Peter said, but I also want to assure uh, our listeners that we are going to be applying this, we are applying this to other files in other provinces, so look out Ministry of Health and wait times, look out doctor shortages. Look out other topics where Canadians are paying top dollar, top absolute dollar, and getting near the bottom of the list results. So we're going after that model more. We commend Minister Phillips for what he's done so far. We'll see about the outcome. But we're going to be applying that same lens to other ministries and other problems so that seniors can get concrete action and not just vague promises.
1: Okay, thank you so much to our Zoomer squad, David Kravitz, Bill Van Gorder, and Peter Mugridge. Thanks so much. Cheers, Thanks, Libby. Okay, Thanks, Libby. we will talk next week. Right now, we have to take a break. And when we come back, we will be talking to Dr. Susie Hota about those booster shots and try to clear up some of that confusion from the guidelines when we return.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.